Hello, storytellers. That's right, you are a storyteller. Each of us is, and we need to be, because story is how we connect, and your story is how you stand out. Welcome to the Story Maven podcast. I'm Alice Fairfax, your host. I was a Walt Disney World performer for over 20 years, and what I know from being an improv storyteller is that you can increase your impact and grow your audience by telling a great story. I love working with nonprofits and small businesses because I know how overwhelming it can be to run your business, manage your life, and then have to get into a creative zone so you can sit down and write weekly emails. So if you're overwhelmed by your social media calendar or dealing with pre-speech jitters, I can help. Take a listen to the Story Maven podcast where we meet great storytellers who share their secrets with us and then visit alicefairfax.com for more tools to help you with storytelling success. There's a big difference between art and design, right? Mm. Art is the uh, emptying of your soul in a medium that best that, that the individual best feels represents that vision, that that heartbeat, that passion. You know, that's a it's that that's a it's a soul representation that has value to the individual uh, alone, and that individual feels. Uh, it necessary to express that it could be music, could be performance, could be painting, design. It could be you know multiple different mediums, uh, dancing, and the only outward value that's placed on that is when others, when that medium, that message, that vision resonates with others. That could be your painting is hanging in a gallery and somebody comes in and assigns a value and buys it, or people show up to your dance and. You know, these days it gets it goes viral, right? I mean, that, that's how value is assigned to art. Um, and many who are artists who create actually are satisfied with their own value that they place on it, and they're confident enough that they don't need anybody else to to assign a value to that. Design is a completely different thing. Design does involve art. But design and its very nature solves the problem and makes money. In this episode, we meet Theron Skies, a real-life Imagineer. He has led diverse concept design and construction projects from hundreds of millions to multiple billions of dollars all over the world. And today he's going to tell us how, for over 30 years, he has applied the same story-based approach to connect the brand to the consumer in lasting ways. And that's in some of your favorite theme parks and cruise ships. To find out my Story Maven takeaways, visit alicefairfax.com slash episodes for how I apply his insights to the work of telling your story. But first, here's my conversation with Walt Disney Imagineering veteran Theron Skies. Um, for those, I, most of my audience probably knows what an Imagineer is, but um, maybe somebody don't, and maybe even if you do know what an Imagineer is, you're thinking about, you know, Walt and, and tweed suits walking around a swamp somewhere. Um, maybe you don't know what that means <laughs> today. So can you give us a little picture of what that life has been like and what, what you've sure. been working on? Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. Um, talking about what we do is, is exciting and fun. And one of my goals, uh, as you said, your passion is helping entrepreneurs and uh, NGOs really, you know, get off the ground, find their voice, find their story. And one of my passions is educating, inspiring and guiding the next generation of theme park professionals, right? This, this themed entertainment world that we live and move and breathe in. And, and my hope is to inspire somebody uh, to kind of move in that direction. Well, what I find super fascinating about Imagineering is that, you know, Walt Disney actually coined the phrase, and it, it is a combination of the two primary groups or components of the themed entertainment industry. It's the technical and the non-technical. It's the dreamers and the doers, right? So said differently, it's the left brain and the right brain. Yeah. It really is the combination of two words, imagination and engineering. And that kind of sums up 
all of the type of work that not just Imagineering, but literally all of those project teams that work in this field have to contend with is people that have a center, center goal of delivering these immersive dimensional physical experiences, but having to mash up this uh, sometimes uh, talent and subject matter expertise that's very different than your own. Technical and non-technical people working together for three to five years, you can imagine the amount of sparks that uh, can come from such a collaboration. And one of the things that I always like to teach and, and kind of represent is that, yes, there's going to be tension, but let's keep the tension positive. Mm-hmm. I really kind of preach and represent positive tension because it's leveraging the tension in a way that really builds a synergy that, that is bigger than and, and better than what we could have done on our own. You know, when you have an idea of something and somebody possibly challenges that idea with some different thinking, if we're open to it and we take on that challenge and we let it um, you know, stew in our own minds and we really think about it and we begin to adapt to that new kind of thinking, once we implement that, oftentimes what, what I've always found in my career is that what we're delivering is better than what might have been my initial vision. So I'm a huge fan of collaboration and the idea of Imagineering, I think, is really the, the personification of that collaboration of groups of individuals that are sometimes completely different focus in their goals. That's so great. I... Um... Uh, I wrote a book. Oh gosh, my gosh, it was 20 years ago now. Um, (gasps) That's awesome. (laughs) Time for Uh, another one. (laughs) (laughs) Once every 20 years, I like to do something for myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But it's called, it's a book called The Creative Life and it's a Bible study about creativity. And one of the things that I, I was most passionate about talking about was the idea of the idea phase and the action phase and how there's a constant flow in between the two of them. But there's also a very definite, um, we are in the idea time right now and you can crush ideas by trying to put action to them. And you can also derail action if you stop and say, "Mm, you know, you know, what if we, yeah, well, we're opening tomorrow. So what if it's not the, right. real, you know, we need right. to, so you need to ha- figure out that and exactly what you just said, a positive tension of mm. how do we have a flow of action in the ideation time that's positive? How do we have a flow of ideas in the action time that's positive? But how do we also yeah. acknowledge where we are in those two, you know, yeah. to, to give everyone uh, the best use of of all of the resources that you have available to you. Absolutely. That really speaks to me. Yeah, we can certainly talk process, uh, but you've just sparked uh, some thinking in my mind. I'll just blurt it out. And that is, you know, there's a huge difference between, uh, for those of your audience members that don't really know this, or maybe they've never been uh, faced with this kind of an idea, what I'm going to say is that there's a big difference between art and design. Right. Mm. Art is the uh, emptying of your soul in a medium that best that, that the individual best feels represents that vision, that that heartbeat, that passion. You know, that's a it's that that's a it's a soul representation that has value to the individual uh, alone. And that individual feels uh, it necessary to express that it could be music, could be performance, could be painting, design. It could be you know multiple different mediums, uh, dancing, and the only outward value that's placed on that is when others, when that medium, that message, that vision resonates with others. That could be your painting is hanging in a gallery and somebody comes in and assigns a value and buys it, or people show up to your dance and. You know, these days it gets it goes viral, right? I mean, that, that's how value is assigned to art. Um, and many who are artists who create actually are satisfied with their own value that they place on it, and they're confident enough that they don't need anybody else to to assign a value to that. Design is a completely different thing. Design does involve art. But design and its very nature solves the problem, 
and makes money, right? That <laughs> that's what design is about. And if for. you factor, right. it, it's so true. Um, and and when you factor in the themed entertainment design, you have to factor in another um, criteria within your design, and that is making an emotional connection with your audience. So if you were a, uh, the, the example I always use, it usually gets a few giggles because it's, I, hopefully it's an effective example, is if you're a product designer, um, you know, an industrial designer, and you're designing appliances, for example, refrigerators, toasters, et cetera, that's uh, the, making an emotional connection with your consumer is not a part of your design process right? Uh, uh, choosing the right materials, making it um, cheaper to build for your client and, you know, they can maximize the, the retail value. All of those things go into it. But the last time you bought a toaster or a refrigerator or a range, you did not have probably an emotional connection with it. This is changing with Apple and, and Tesla and those types of products are now being built with an emotional connection. But I submit to you, that anyone who designs or creates in the themed entertainment industry, if you don't create using all five of the human senses and tell it in, a, in the form of a story that resonates with the particular audience that you're designing it for, you won't make an emotional connection. And if you don't make an emotional connection, that audience won't want to come back, spend money and experience it again. So I, to me, that's a huge differentiation for anyone uh, especially students, I do talk to a lot of students who are considering how to focus their creative skill. Should I go into design or should I stay in art or can it be a collaboration of the two? I always find it important to really make sure that they understand if you go into design, you're working for a client really or multiple mm -hmm. clients for really for the rest of your career. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're um, putting into flesh into <laughs> They, what they want and need. Whereas right. I, I loved your definition of art. I really loved that about that. That is an expression that you need, that you need to get out. Um, yeah. And I'm totally paraphrasing, but I'm going <laughs> to write that down and I'm going to, I'm going to take this tape and send it back to you so that you can use that yes. definition because it's brilliant. <laughs> I, I thought too, as you were talking about design and especially, so then, so then there's kind of these two levels of design, really, you've got, um, design um, for use, but theme park design, um, what occurred to me was that there's an interaction with the design in a different way than mm. there is with a toaster. You know, I might, I might love the design of my toaster because the designer added some beauty to it, but right. the interaction that I have with design at one of the theme parks is it's life-changing. It's transporting. Yes. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, two most important, um, there's, a, there's a lot, obviously. I'm not a sociologist, but the two elements when it comes to entertainment uh, that is really important to all humans is escapism and play. And um, we find that represented in a lot of different mediums uh, that are familiar to us, right? Everybody has a favorite book that they've read, a TV show that that you know they just love, and uh, movies, right? Those forms of entertainment um, give audiences the opportunity to escape, and often many of them are playful. I remember back in the days when Lost was on ABC, and everybody would have Lost viewing parties, right? Or now they have Bachelorette viewing parties, and you know it's it's a it's a social um, moment to share together. And, uh, and, and making that connection is really important. So, but if you think of theme park or themed environments is probably a better way to say it because it's way more than just parks. It's, you know, hotels and RD&E and cruise ships and casinos and museums. And well, if gosh, you, if you Disney World too, it's the walkway from one to the other. You know, right. that is part of the intentionality of the design. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and great point. If you take, um, the theme park as a medium of communicating story. Um, I'll start again with, with a book. A book is uh, probably the most personal way to represent story because each of us, if you read the book and I read the book, we would visualize the characters different. We may even have a different perception of the interactivity between two characters or, or if it's 
posed in a specific time frame, you know, we would imagine what that would look like differently. So books are the most personal form of story representation because the action and everything takes place in our mind. TV and movies a little bit different because we're going through that story at the pace of the director um, uh, and, and film team, right? They take you through those scenes and they only show you what's important to drive the story and the narrative as they see fit. And um, as audience members, we willingly submit to that, uh, especially if we have a favorite director, and we follow that story. We those characters are endearing. We love it. It's you know it in, it intrigues us. It it makes us cry. You know it, it's it, you know that emotional connection. Theme parks are completely different because it embodies all of the best characteristics of those previous mediums that I just mentioned. As a theme park creator. We have to create a space, a physical dimensional space that exists in time and place. It's a scene, just like a book or a movie or a TV show. It involves characters. It involves a time. It involves a theme, which is the moral of the story or the meaning, you know, good versus evil, you know, strength, love, um, you know, a, a theme of some kind. But the real uh, part, uh, point of, of, um, separation between these mediums is that the guests themselves are uh, interacting with this story, with this environment as they would uh, as a director, right? They're their own director. They're their own ph um, photographer because they're going through the scene at their pace. They're creating the story using the elements that we provided for them as they see fit. Uh, and like in a book, they're imagining things taking place uh, what's in that upper room up there with the light on, you know, they have an imagination uh, that we framed with some very important story criteria. That's why it's so important in a, in a themed environment to stay consistent, right? On Main mm. Street, if you parked a Prius, it would destroy it. It would, it would kill the whole illusion. The, 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 the long shot, the, the medium shot and the close up, as John Hench used to say, all have to be consistent right? Uh, in, in a theme park. Um, so anyways, I'm riffing a little bit, but I oh, think that that's, that's so important for people to understand um, that when you create a story in a physical real place that's affected by the elements that, you know, has to deal with all those things. And by the way, it's it's up for what, a hundred years? How long is a theme park up for? Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's a different design criteria. Well, the the two things that you that you said there about having a theme uh, I talk a lot about that in my classes, about having a universal theme. And my little, my rule that I give to everybody about storytelling is that it has to be universal so we can relate, specific so we care. That's how you're going to build mm. a good story. It has to be universal so we relate to it, and then specific yeah. so we care. So it has to have detail to it. Um, and so you talked about that theme and driving that theme through the physical environment, through the story, but also staying consistent. And I think that's a really important message. Um, yeah. It really our... is the why. It's it's the why. Why are we building a theme park? Why does, you know, um, why does Disneyland exist, right? Why does Animal Kingdom exist? What's the why behind it? And I think that's the the real important thing in the classes that I teach is literally all of the stuff that I'm telling you um, is is that too. We we it's just building a cool place that people want to go see is not enough. It doesn't right. hit on what you just said. It's not universal enough. It's not. It has to have a theme, a reason, a meaning uh, mm -hmm. behind it, and that's what makes the emotional connection. So tell me about. Um creating this story and or tell me a little bit uh, about your process and some of in some of the projects that you worked on um are you in that storytelling or are you in that um application side um <laughs> tell me about that process for you and how important the story is where does that come in in the process those are like sure. 12 questions in one, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, thankfully, I'm good at, at juggling and spinning plates, so uh, no problem. Perfect. <laughs> Sometimes you have to juggle flaming chainsaws, and that, that's a different yeah. story. But um, Yeah, so I think my answer would be yes. Uh, I'm uh, one of those unicorns that had the, the honor of being involved in the entire process. The classes that I teach, um, my, my online class, as well as the university work that I do, 
really talks about the project, uh, what you do before the project starts and all the way through until after the project ends. And there's um, not a lot of people get to uh, enjoy that, that full scope. Um, and that's totally fine. Some people are perfectly happy engaging in different stages. But I have found that as professionals in this industry, when you have an overall view of what's happening, it's like having a roadmap. It's a little bit more, the journey's a little more enjoying, uh, enjoyable. So in my career, I've always been on the creative side of, of this business. Um, I started in film and uh, transitioned into theme parks. I didn't know about in Imagineering, uh, and I know a lot of people, it's kind of a knuckle-biting moment. <gasps> you know, you didn't know about Imagineering because they have thousands of, of, of resumes on file, and I'm just the, the nerd that stumbled into it, right? Um, but it, it, it was a better way and a more lasting way to tell stories, I thought. You know, um, I, I have a construction background. My father was a builder, so from the youngest possible age, I literally grew up on job sites. I understood every kind of material, how to implement the material, how to build with that material. But I think the most important lesson I learned from that was you start with basically an idea. You look at the mechanism that tells you how to deliver the idea, the plans, the drawings, the whatever, specifications. And then through hard work and intelligent assembly, you then have the pleasure of standing back and seeing a beautiful functional um, element that you've, that you've built. And I think that process really led me into the themed entertainment industry. Um, uh, I, I really was self-taught. So um, I got, I mentioned to you, I got married quite young. I had an associate degree from a little teeny college in uh, Kalispell, Montana, and moved to Florida to get into Hollywood East, moved to Orlando, mm -hmm. and uh, did, landed my first job with HBO Pictures. And um, somebody had heard from somebody that, that I was, you know, reliable worker. So they called me and I interviewed for the scenic paint role and got hired on the spot, even though I never scenically painted anything in my life. And that started a great role with, you know, films and TV shows and commercials and scenic shop work. And I just learned every role I was on. I learned something new. I, I taught myself how to draft. I taught myself how to render architecturally, taught myself how to use the computer. You know, I'm the, the guy that didn't have enough money for a drafting table. So I found one in the dump and uh, refinished it and put it in my laundry room. So then after my, you know, 15 hour day, I put the kids to bed and then I would go in and practice on how to draft and draw and those things. So um, I think that's really important for people who are really interested in this field is that, yes, you can go to uni. Yes, absolutely. It's a way to, to, to uh, break into the market. Uni gives you a lot of skills. It gives you a lot of theory and it does, it can give you a foot in the door but at the end of the day, you've got to show up on every single team that you're on, and, and it requires learning. You know, even a neurosurgeon that goes through 10 years of education and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans, I would submit to you that they don't truly learn until the first time that the scalpel hits the skin, right, on a real patient with parents and loved ones. And it's the same thing in our industry, right? The moment that you're there and you've been given $200 million to deliver something, you know, there's a lot of responsibility. And um, so I'm, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors, but, but that's yeah. kind of where I, where I came from. And I think that what I teach is learn, adapt, and implement. And that's the cycle we should use for our life. Um, every new job that you're on, every new project, every new thing that you um, need to learn how to do you need to learn about it and it changes our paradigm, right? We learn something new and that, that, that requirement to change our paradigm is the adapt phase. And we're, we're, we're mixing what we just learned with what we know and our his history and our applications of what we've done, our past failures, et cetera. And then it really doesn't get locked in until we implement, until we do it, until we try it. And that often requires failure to learn because we, we, we're human beings, right? We, we learn from when we try and when we fail. And uh, so anyways, that's a lot of what I teach is um, learn, adapt, and implement. 
And you should always be putting yourself in a position where you're learning something new, always. That's great. Well, and this has been, if anything, this that's what this past year, this season has taught all of us is that, oh boy, you know, what we thought we knew, we have to adapt and we have to adapt and we implement and adapt and implement again and again oh, and again. Um, so true. Talk to me about uh, your process with uh, the story going from on paper to um, practical reality and into uh, into real, real design, an environment where people can interact with it, where people can touch it and see it and ride it and laugh at it. <laughs> right. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think the my description of art and design kind of feeds into a lot of my approach. Um, when you think of design, you you think of it as problem solving, you know, solution oriented, and it actually does good design drives business. Good design makes money. That's you know, it doesn't. You take a couple of clicks on Google, and you will see that a good design actually makes money for a company. That's not too hard of a stretch for people to really grasp. So with that as a context, when you're, uh, when I'm doing a job uh, for a client, even though that client was Disney for 23 years, I always thought of myself, my team is a boutique design firm and my client is Disney. It might be a billion dollar project. And I treated that as their money and I treated it as their brand, their audience and their business objectives. And my goal was to fully understand what my client needed, even if they didn't understand what they needed. So there's a process of what I call swimming upstream to go back and interview your client to really understand what it is that they need. And as a design professional, you if you've done it for a while, you know the elements that you need to deliver a successful and functional and beautiful environment, a beautiful restaurant, a retail space, you know, whatever that might be that you're designing, a neighborhood, a, you know, a city block, um, whatever that is, you have a sense, the designers would have a sense of what those needs are. So you literally, you swim upstream. Uh, I can't tell you how many projects I started on where it was my first day on the, on the job. And I had the project manager look at me and say, well, creative's late. Right. And I'm, and I'm looking around going, I'm the first first person on the job for creative. How can we be late? Well, you know, this and that and the other thing. And so I allowed the schedule to influence my pace. And I took the program, quote unquote, that the client gave me. We need this many seats, this many people an hour. And we think it's this big, you know, that kind of thing. We think the garbage facilities are here. We think restrooms are there. And we just, oh, great, they're an operator. They know what they're talking about. Let's design based on this. And I can't tell you how in the 11th hour, so many things changed because as the client began to see this take shape, they don't often have the ability to visualize a three-dimensional space. They're business people yeah. that they would then say, oh, you know, we really don't want that. We want, and then so what you end up with is a ton of 11th hour changes yeah. that make your life miserable and really impede your ability as a designer to deliver on what your promise was, is I'm going to solve your problems and I'm going to grow your business. So therefore swim upstream, ask the questions, you know, understand really what your client needs. And the three elements that I, that I always teach that every designer needs is you have to understand the brand. Every client has a brand of some kind. It doesn't matter if it's an insurance company and they're building a building that is an icon to their brand, right? It, 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 how, all the choices you make on what that building is represents their brand. Even more important, if it's a themed environment where you're telling stories, understand the brand and then understand that brand's audience. Now, I say that really specifically because if you think of a company like Disney, Disney itself, the Disney company, TWDC, right? They have a brand. But Marvel, Pixel, Pixar, right? Disney Studios, um, Lucasfilm, they also all have individual brands with individual audiences that resonate with that brand. So when I, when I teach understanding the brand, but understanding the audience of that brand, those two elements are really important. And then the third element is understanding the client's business objectives. 
And the way that I use story, I use story as a unique encapsulation of those three elements. It wraps around, solidifies those three elements together. And that, in a sense, becomes the North Star for the whole project. The benefit of that is you get your client to buy into the story. Now, the story could be as complex as these people immigrated to this country and started this business and learned about this and that, and that's why there's this, and that gives us, you know, it's a Disney story. Or it could be as simple as, you know what, it's a retail shop, and it, it, it's based on these principles, and it, and it, you know, really, this here's how we communicate. And these are the key takeaways for our consumers, our, our visitors. But it's really critical to have those three filters included in the story, because then the story is the vehicle. It's the mechanism that delivers brand uh, growth, right? Brand equity and uh, with your primary audience, and it grows the business according to the client's business objectives. That's great. That in a nutshell is, is that's kind of my process. That's great. I love, I love thinking of the story as the vehicle. Um, I, I think that's great. And I, I really love tying this back to business objectives for people because a lot a lot of times when we talk about story uh executive directors well i don't have time for that um or that's too woo woo out there for me but when you when you can turn a story into the railroad tracks your business flies (laughs) it moves it is a direct connection to your target audience who is your consumer um, Absolutely. You know, and it's not in your the way you're talking about it. It's not crass at all. It's it's quite <laughs> affirming. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's important for I, us I to understand those objectives. Mm. No, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just I was just thinking of an illustration that if you were to sit down with a CFO, right, chief financial officer, somebody who lives and breathes the bottom line in Excel spreadsheets probably the least creative thing that I could possibly think of from in a business atmosphere. If you sat with that individual and really talked to them about the reports that they give, the way they structure their report, I believe you could get that individual to see that what they're doing is telling a story. That story is with performance, numbers, objectives, you know, whether it's Kager or ROI or any of those terms that are prevalent in the finance industry, they're still telling a story. And the reason I can make that assertion is because what we're dealing with here is human beings, right? We're not designing things for animals. That's a a whole different approach. We're designing things for human beings. And human beings, the basic element of interactivity is story, right? Whether it's cave paintings or chiseled uh, uh, words on stone or written on papyrus or performed on stages with masks, um, it is story. Um, and, and I think that's so important. And one element in my uh, career that reinforced that to me was, was living and working in Southeast Asia. I had the opportunity to work in Hong Kong when the park was brand new and building this design team and expanding the park and everything. And what was amazing about that is understanding the brand, understanding the culture, who is my audience. And here you're dealing with literally the first generation of Chinese to actually learn how to interface with a Western product, right? And and when you understand that the Chinese have 5,000 years of storytelling, if you think of it that way, right? The color white means something, the color black means, gold means something. Number four is really bad. There's no fours in elevators, right? There's no 44s in elevators, no 400s in elevators. You know, you don't give a watch to somebody for their birthday. It reminds them of the time they have left on the earth. All of those cultural things are stories that are passed down. So that really reinforced to me, I mean, a culture, I mean, America is what, 240 years old, something like that. That's a blip on the radar. You're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of years of telling stories and how integral those stories are. So as humans, we tell stories and it's just a matter of what outlet we use, what medium we use to deliver that story. And as you said, it has to be relevant to the audience, otherwise it'll just bounce off. It won't make sense. So when you were growing up, what did you imagine you would be? Where did you, what did you think you wanted to be? And what led you to pursue uh, this that 
uh, I'm always interested in how people ended up where they are, what that journey yeah. was, what that process was. Um, and Definitely. so what was the, what was the original thought and what, you know, even as a kid, what did you see yourself doing? Were you, were you constantly building things? Were you constantly drawing things? Were you drawn to story or was it something else? You know, what, what was it that was the spark? You know, I, I didn't really ever think of story, uh, in, in a, in that terminology. I was, I was always building things. I mentioned my, my dad was a builder, so he had a shop. He always had scrap materials. He had, you know, shop day on Sunday and we'd make you know, whether it was swords and shields or a tree house, or, I mean, we're always building sanding wood and hammering nails, always building something. And then as I uh, got a little bit older, I was into plastic models. So I love to build those models and paint them and display them. And then I got bored because they were just in one form for too long. So I would very carefully dissect the models with an exacto knife and keep all the pieces in a box. And then I would reform and build all kinds of hybridized spaceships and all kinds of things that were in my mind. Uh, Legos were a huge influence. I literally spent <laughs> probably weeks of my life collectively in, in a pile of Legos building all kinds of fantastic machines and worlds. But the most, probably the most significant impact on my young life where I realized, where it really was the first time I thought about, I could, this is what I want to do. Uh, uh, and this is going to give away my age, which is no big deal. In 1977, Star Wars, um, what everyone now looks at is A New Hope, um, came out. That film changed my whole life. I saw that and I was just like, I don't know what that is, but that's what I want to do. And, uh, and that's why I pursued film, because I kind of thought it was film. At first, I thought it was model building, and I thought maybe it was you know, um, creature effects. I love the idea. And I did a big special effects course and everything. Um, and, and what I, when I got into film, uh, which I got into on the construction side, set design, scenic painting, sculpting, I did a lot of sculpting, uh, large format. And, and I, what I realized was it just, it wasn't delivering the meaning that I really wanted. And I, I just had an opportunity to move from, uh, film and TV into theme parks, literally a phone call. It was uh, uh, somebody was looking for help at Universal Studios and knew that I you know, did really large format sculpting. And um, I ended up on a job where I, we did all of the rock work, artificial rock work around the lagoon in uh, Orlando. That was my Beautiful. first job. And yeah, met a great guy. Uh, he was an incredible artist. I was a great you know, leader and organizer and all that and, and sculptor. He went to Euro Disneyland Paris at the time I went and went back on a television uh, program and then he called me and I I'm buried I need help so anyways I ended up in Paris uh, building uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and that was sort of my first time with um, with the company and I wouldn't go back to work for them full time that was in 92 and I didn't go back until 97 and um, and literally been there I had been there for 23 years since then but um, that's kind of what got me started was this this vision of now when I go back and look at it as a 10 year old, I was like, I couldn't put it into words. But I look back now and it was about world building. It was yeah. about all of the elements to build those worlds, the the machines, the vehicles, the people, the costumes, the music, the scenery. And uh, and boy, theme park work paid paid that off in spades. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I've been um, listening to um, Jason Sudeikis, who plays Ted Lasso in the new TV show, Ted Lasso. I've been listening to him a lot. Um, and he talk, he is talking about his work um, in this, um, in this TV show, creating this show, writing, um, producing, and he's the star of it as well but he's talking about it from an improvisational background and he keeps quoting um cool. quincy jones who the great quincy jones um yeah. and saying that when you create something you have to leave a little room and quincy says a little room for god and jason talks about you have to leave that little bit of room for magic and jason's approach is to think about the audience that they're going to offer something and so I wonder about the creating all of these worlds for then 
the audience to use, because that was certainly my experience at Walt Disney mm. World and the work that I was doing as an actor, that if I came out and just did it and just flat out did it, it was mm. fine. Even as yeah. one of the most iconic characters singing Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo in the castle, if I came out and just did it, that was fine. But if I came out and did that, as happened one evening, and an old man with his family um, was clearly suffering from dementia, but was in this space, and he reached out to my hand and he said, you sing so beautifully. Oh. If I keep going, so the fairy godmother had to speak to him in that moment mm. and be in the brand and be in the story and be, but also be in that moment. If I had just ignored yeah. that and moved on with my track, for me, that would have destroyed the, the story and that missed mm. the moment, missed the magic. Yeah. Um, and that, that that iconic character can afford that room. Right. She can afford uh, that room for that little bit of room for God, a little bit of room for magic, a little bit of room yeah. for that interaction that is unexpected. And so I think about that in talk of, talking about your world building, um, that what is it like then to see the audience interact and use the world that you have built? <laughs> There's so much there to unpack. I was, as you were talking, it was resonating with me. And, and uh, what's really beautiful about that story is it was so much more than just the um, moment of connection between you and that individual guest, because in that moment, you became more than a performer. You became a human. You, you, yes. you know, you were very human. You weren't rehearsed. You were, you know, so into the character that the character themselves came alive. And it was beyond you performing the character. And the cool thing is everybody else in the audience that witnessed that were drawn into that connection. And that, absolutely. that is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it, um, it was think, definitely one of those moments where you have a moment as the performer inside the character where you're thinking, I don't want to break this for anyone else in the room. <laughs> but knowing that yeah. if I ignored him, that would have broken it for everyone in the room. Yeah. You know, that yeah, they were what, what a place to be. invested. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you have that moment yeah. like you're teetering on the edge. But <laughs> I, I wonder what those moments are like for you in, uh, in creating that world. It, it's really, it's a great question. I'm really so glad that you, you asked it because so much of what we design for this world, these worlds are, um, you have the physical tangible assets, right? The concrete, the steel, you, you have, it has to be there. It has to be a functional environment. As we've mentioned, it takes people to run the thing. Um, so it, all of those elements have to be there, but you can't actually design magic, right? Um, I mean, sure, you can do Pepper's Ghost, and sure, you can do those other things. And and people call, we, we call them illusions, because it's something that's actually created. But magic, magic, real magic is not the rabbit coming out of the hat. The real magic is the little kid that's standing on Main Street during the, 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 the kiss good night, right? During that, that nighttime spectacular, the fireworks are going up, the music rises, your favorite character shows up, and that little kid is standing there covered in goosebumps, has made an emotional connection that will last their entire life. That cannot be designed. That is a unique combination of elements that have to exist in an environment. Now, here's the real brain twister. <laughs> it's different for every single guest. So to create real magic, those real goosebump moments, um, First, you have to realize that as a as a creator of those uh, of those worlds, you're dealing with, and, and this isn't meant to sound too harsh, but you're dealing with a jaded audience. You're the uh, you know they know uh, a lot. Consumers today are are very very well educated. You can find gigabytes of information, terabytes of information on almost any subject. Every single Blu-ray that you get, right, has hours of supplemental information on how we made this movie. So you have a very sophisticated, very um, knowledgeable audience. So creating genuine moments of magic becomes extremely difficult. So my approach to that and the, the approach that, that I, I was taught was that you, you, human beings are equipped with five senses and you never quite know what sense will 
establish a memory in an individual guest. So therefore, you have to create scenes, you have to create moments that layer on elements of, of, of all these senses, right? And that's why when we tell stories, we tell stories with meaning. Because we're humans, we, we want the, 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 the prince to end up with the princess, right? We want the frog to turn into, you know, we want those happily ever after moments. We want that optimistic story to reinforce the fact that the world's a better place, right? I mean, especially now, we, we need those optimistic uh, stories. Um, and that's why Walt created the, the, the happily ever after. Grimm's fairy tales were pretty grim. He changed Very the dark. endings and... And that's, that's the happily ever after. So layering all of these elements within an experience, whether it's an individual show, a parade, an attraction, a land, or a whole entire resort, all of those elements are thought through very, very carefully as to how they layer in to tell individual stories, how they reinforce experiences, because you never know what elements that you've layered into the scene will resonate with what guest on what level and and in what way it'll trigger a memory later. And that's the emotional connection that I was talking about. If you introduce um, uh, inconsistencies in your story, if you uh, don't maintain things well and those elements don't perform, what you end up with is holes in your story and you end up with guests where the, the story falls flat. It doesn't resonate with them. Um, we talked a lot about design and, and from as a, I always think of design, even though it's theme park design, I think of it in terms of product design. And as a product designer, we have an end user, right? There's an end user for this device. <laughs> in theme park design, theme design, I always teach that there's two end user groups. And this always people's heads explode when you say that because it doesn't make sense. And let me explain. The two end users, the first end user group is the frontline employee. Because if, if what I design isn't catered to the actual team members that are there interacting with the guests and bringing that story alive, if, if what I've created doesn't consider them, they're going to be fatigued in their job. They're going to be frustrated in their job. And, you know, it's really tough to, to convey a great attitude um, and bring the story to life if you're really, if you're fatigued, if you're frustrated. And then of course, the second group of end users is the guest, but uh, it would be wrong to say we design everything for the guests. Um, it's only partly right because if you don't remember that cast member that has to push the same button or open the same till every day and has to reach for something, if you don't design that in, you're, you're literally torpedoing the rest of the environment that you built because the people who bring it to life are not going to be happy. Right. They're facilitating that story for you. Yep. I, I tell all new people, new newcomers into the industry. That's the first thing I, I really teach is, you know, if you had a theme park without any cast members, uh, it'd be a very boring place, right? You just wander through. Nobody would be there to make things work. Nobody would be there to say, hey, Alice, how was your day? You know, happy birthday. I noticed the button that you're wearing. <laughs> happy anniversary. You know, there wouldn't be anybody to bring that to life. And so those frontline employees are critical to delivering story. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. So um, as we wrap up here, tell tell people where they can find you and how they can interact with you um, and get the benefit of your experience. Awesome. Thanks, Alice. I really had a great time. Um, and I, I love speaking with audiences. And I hope that what we've talked about really resonates with your audience. Um, as you can tell, I'm just a little bit passionate about it. And uh, when I get the opportunity to talk to great people like yourself and to your audience members, I, I always enjoy that. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, since uh, leaving Imagineering in December, um, because of all of the crazy global economic stuff that's going on, I actually found a lot of freedom in creating my own company. That company is called The Designer's Creative Studio. And um, you can search it on Google. Uh, that's, that's where it is. Or you can look me up on all the different socials. I'm there either by my name or by the Designers Creative Studio. And uh, one of the things that I do is um, I teach in uh, several different universities. Um, I have an online course in how to work in themed entertainment. I do quite a lot of actually, which is a lot of fun, a lot of coaching sessions. Um, and in those coaching sessions, I work with students. I work with industry pros. 
who are looking to kind of pivot and change up their their uh, ball game, students who are looking to take that theoretical application of academic uh, course knowledge and bridge that gap with you know somebody who's actually been in the industry on the ground. And then I, I've actually uh, talked with fans and just want to know more about what's going on. Tell me the inside story. Right. You know, I have a, a, a really great Facebook group called the uh, Imagineering Insider. And it's where we talk all about, um, you know, the, the, the person behind the curtain, you know, how everything happens. So that's my goal right. is really to educate, inspire and guide uh, people. Um, I do have a consultancy business and, um, you know, working in everything from retail to theme parks or anything like that so should anybody want to engage with me that hopefully is a lot of ways for for people to to find out more great and i will have links to all of that as well on the uh, on the show notes page well thank you again so much it was so wonderful to um i always find it's really fun uh for someone who was essentially a frontline employee for so many years um bringing the magic it's always fun to talk to the designers uh about it and 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 share that experience that both of us have had and i think what's so um really spectacular uh about the walt disney company and about the work that we've done is that though you and i have never worked together before and never spoken (laughs) before we are both of the same mind yeah that somehow we had this same perspective in how to do this and in how That's to engage so with the audience and how to live out the story. Um, and you created the environment and then I'd fill it. And yep. <laughs> so, exactly. yep. Yep. And it's, I, I think it's always story so interesting. Story blossoms, it becomes more and you adapt the story to suit your audience and every audience is different. I love that, it's so cool. I mean, you perform um, a, a part of the role of storytelling that I can't. Right. I've got to build the building. It's got to function as a restaurant. We can tell story. We can deliver all these hard assets and, and, and talk about the story. But it, it, you guys really bring that to life every single day and make the connection of what we've dreamed up and built. And you connect that to audience members. So I hope that your audience uh, at least leaves this discussion. I'm sure they leave all your podcasts uh, inspired and, and thinking about multiple ways they could apply what we've talked about you know, in their own lives, in their own jobs, um, or even teaching their, their kids. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Well, thank you so very, very much. Thanks for listening to the Story Maven podcast. Be sure to visit alicefairfax.com slash episodes for my Story Maven takeaways from this episode. You'll find other free resources to help you master your storytelling. If you want to find out more about Theron Skis, you can visit his website, at designerscreativestudio.com. I'll have a link to that at my website on the show notes page, alicefairfax.com slash episodes. Or you can look him up by his name, Theron Skees, T-H-E-R-O-N-S-K-E-E-S. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the Story Maven podcast. Be sure to subscribe to and rate and review this podcast. Thank you to Emmett Fenn for the music global from YouTube Music.